0: Welcome to The Car Trade Revisited, the podcast series where we talk about the industry we all love and have running in our blood. I'm Gordon McLeish. I've spent over five decades in the car trade. In the coming weeks, I'll try to inform, entertain, and hopefully remind you of the things you forgot, things that make us all caries. So join me on my journey. My love affair with the car industry started back in the mid-1960s. Back then, Australia had only a few auto brands, and the cars that were available were terrible cars by today's standard. Most were imported, a lot from the UK, with only a few models sourced from Southeast Asia or America. The feeling in Australia after World War II was simply, well, pommy cars were far better built and more economical than those from America. But by the 60s, Ford, General Motors and Chrysler were starting to deliver a wider range of modern family-sized American-style vehicles, the most common makes in the fifties were English, such as Austins and Morris's and Hillmans and Vauxhalls, and Ford factory in England made and, ex- and exported the popular Ford Consuls and Zephyrs. Leading the American contingent was Ford and Chevrolet, as well as Studebaker. These were mostly big cars and were referred to as Yank tanks. Germany and France offered a Mercedes and a Renault. Peugeot and Citroën. The popularity stakes, though, in the late 50s was clearly won by Australia's own car, the Holden, and, surprisingly, the sensational little VW from Germany. VW drivers were so proud of their cars that they used to wave to each other as they passed on the highway. But the first Japanese car that I can recall ever seeing on the streets of Melbourne in the early 60s was a little Mazda Carroll. It was regarded with disdain, really, at first, by the automotive trade, but word spread around quickly that it was actually a Japanese copy of the Morris engine and the Morris running gear, so it was sort of accepted as being okay. I always thought it looked a little bit like a Hillman Imp. It's strange to think, though, that all those English makes have disappeared and the Japanese cars now fill the marketplace, and probably the Chinese are coming up a good second. Immediately after the war, very few families owned a car. Petrol rationing and the post-depression economy of that. and The new cars that were coming onto the market were mostly small and mostly European. Austin A30s, Austin A40s, the little Morris Minor, Standard 10 Cadets, my mum and one of them, and the popular Ford, Vauxhalls and Hillmans. Each model had its own very distinctive style. Apart from the sports cars like the Austin Healey and the Triumph Spitfire and the legendary MG, uh, and the, I remember, Sunbeam Alpine, those who remember that little car. Quite sexy. In the late 50s, the little toy cars that kids had were made by Dinky and Corgi, but they were superseded in the kids' affections in the 60s by matchbox cars. They were sort of little toy cars, more up-to-date, beautiful little models of the cars that we currently saw on the roads in Australia at the time. But... Life changed for all time with the advent of television. The birth rate was high following the war. What was known as the baby boomers was underway as men and women whose lives had been interrupted by the war returned to civilian life. They got married and they had kids. Most young people decided to get married back then in their late teens or early 20s. It was unusual for a girl to give up a job when she got married, or at least, I'm sorry, it wasn't unusual. For her to give up a job when she got married, or at least she uh, did when their first child was on the way. Living together before marriage was still frowned on. Girls and their parents preferred the formality of marriage and young couples just didn't live together like they do today. A man's wage was enough to pay the rent or mortgage and to support his family. As a rule, the purchase price of a home was around four times a man's annual wage and lenders wouldn't accept a home loan application if the repayments exceeded one quarter of a man's income. And to this, the requirements to have a substantial deposit before the loan was even considered, you'd have the situation where people could manage their commitments on one income and where lenders' requirements ensured that the borrowers could afford to meet their commitments. Buying a car and financing it was very, very rare. Dealer finance, or it was called in those days, higher purchase, was frowned upon as a source of last resort. We were brought up in the old idea of if you can't afford to pay cash for it, well, you can't live without it. You can live without it. Like most kids in the 60s, I left school early, uh, age 16. In those days, every school leaver quickly found employment. Whether he left school at 14 or 16, every kid got a job. Banks, insurance companies, hardware merchants, even the public servants willingly took on juniors. Apprenticeships were readily available for those seeking going into a trade. My first job was a junior clerk in the mailroom at Carlton United Breweries. I started licking stamps, opening the mail, carrying typewriters to and from the various typing pools. I spent most of the day running messages and errands and learning to do general filing of documents. This was all part of the learning and it was part of the clerical bookkeeping business from the ground up. And it soon led to more responsible jobs, eventually to a transfer in the Hotel Accounts Payable Department. But that's another story for another podcast. When I started work, conditions for most office workers in Australia were pretty comfortable. Everybody started between 8.30, 9 o'clock, had a 15-minute morning tea break, about 10.30, complete with a stout little matronly woman dressed in a blouse uniform, affectionately known as the tea lady, and her trolley mobile hot water urn, and some dry biscuits. We got a full hour for lunch, when staff usually left the office to do some shopping. They used to go down to the big department stores, like Myers. But at the brewery, however, most of the male staff went down to the company's wet area. This was actually a bar. You got free. Grog. Beer. Free of charge. company supplied a nice, big, ice-cold beer. The area was known by uh, those that worked at the brewery as the Barrow area. So instead of saying I'm going out to smokeo" or I'm going to get a cup of tea, uh, people just said I'm going to Barrow. You knew where they are going. Everybody finished work about five and left the office. Rarely did anyone work outside the normal working hours and nobody took work home. Nobody. No one was expected to work longer hours and no one needed to. Work was generally kept up to date. Trams were packed, as were the trains, and the CBD was, it was just deserted at six o'clock. Occasionally, perhaps at the end of the financial year, it was necessary to work a little bit of overtime to finalise work or do a stock take or attend to the end of the year returns. At these times, though, the boss would ask the required staff to work back. They'd be paid tea money and even overtime. For a time in the early 60s, banks were open on Saturday mornings so insurance companies and other offices opened up too. But demand for services wasn't high and the banks closed on weekends. After that, few offices were open at all on Saturdays, and the big retail stores closed for the weekend, believe it or not, at midday on Saturday. Only petrol stations and convenience stores were open on weekends. Friday night till Monday morning was leisure time, and for just about everybody... Families could get together for picnics, sporting events, or just go away for the weekend. Unfortunately, the push for shops to open seven days a week just killed the social benefit of friends and families having time spent together. In the 60s, Australians generally enjoyed a healthy lifestyle, ate good food, took an interest in sport, outdoor activities, spending much of their leisure time at the beach. And, you know, you had weekends off, so why not? In the early 60s, there were no credit cards either. Borrowing money was avoided, except when a loan was required to purchase your home. And refrigerators, furniture, even cars were usually saved up for. And they were paid for in cash. Folding. If you couldn't afford to pay cash for a new fridge or a lounge chair, you simply did without. Or you bought a second-hand one until you could afford to pay cash for a new one. More leisure time to spend with family and less financial stress. Life was pretty good in the late 60s. Personal customer service and home deliveries, provided by a variety of the greengrocers and other local merchants, came to an end with the spread of those popular supermarkets. They opened up everywhere, all along the shopping strips. Aisles were packed with brightly packaged groceries and merchandise. The advent of the shopping trolley and the full service checkouts. Spelled the end of the personal customer service and home deliveries just all stopped. Other tradesmen who regularly delivered to your front door included the milkman during the early hours in the morning, the baker, the iceman, the butcher, the greengrocer, even the farmer who delivered eggs or even a pair of rabbits. All in horse-drawn carts. That's right. Even in the 60s, our milkman still delivered with a horse-drawn cart in Ringwood. These days, apart from the daily newspaper and the mail from the post office, the only thing we get delivered regularly is junk mail. Although that stopped a bit during the pandemic, didn't it? It used to be that service to customers was paramount to the success of any business. Now it seems that business, particularly big business, has lost sight of customer service altogether. In its scramble for higher and higher profits, we've just become a number. Do you remember the days when your bank used to give you good personal customer service? Hmm. Geez, you've got a good memory then. In the days when kids had a big backyard to play and everybody had a few fruit trees. We had a passion vine fruit tree, uh, sorry, passion fruit vine, a couple of lemon trees, and an apple and a pear tree. Sounds like one of those hymns, doesn't it? Our neighborhood was full of people growing tomatoes and peas and carrots, and pumpkins. Talk about off-grid and self-sufficiency. Back then, you know what? We had it all. Men of that era often went around selling stuff from carts, sharpening knives, offering to fix things, doing odd jobs. These days, I suppose, anyone offering to do that, uh, they'd be looked on with suspicion and sent on their way. But remember, 40, 50 years ago, there was no talk of stranger danger, no fear of terrorism. No one had ever heard of home invasions. Certainly there was crime, Gee, some of it was quite shocking, but there wasn't the fear of being a victim of crime that seems to prevail today. The service offered by these odd job men was probably taken for granted, just as today we take for granted Jim's mowing or mobile dog washers and Uber Eats. Look at our recent pandemic lockdown. Companies now provide similar, though more organised services via your phone app. We live in an ever-changing world. People now want to work from home. Farmers, cafe owners, other employers, they just can't find enough staff. They now are offering bounties and upfront cash payments to attract workers. Back in the sixties, as I was entering the workforce, if you asked any kid between the age of six or ten what they wanted to be when they grew up, you'd probably hear things like, Oh, I want to be a fireman or IFL footballer or even some of the odd nerds wanted to be a school teacher. Others that were more ambitious might mention things like an astronaut or a doctor or a nurse. Chances are, and you probably will never hear a kid mention, or, I want to be a car salesman, or even I want to be a salesperson. In reality, no one really aspires to be a salesperson. In most cases, it becomes a career by default. So why are some salespeople superstars, while others in the same situation? Basically selling the same stuff to the same customers, not as successful. Given the same sales tools, the same level of education and motivation, why do some salespeople succeed where others just fail? Is their success the result of working harder or are they working smarter? Are they just luckier than the other counterparts? If you ask an extremely successful salesperson, hey, what makes you different from the average sales rep? You probably you probably get vague answers, if any answer at all. Why? Because the real answer is that most successful salespeople are simply doing what comes naturally. We're all born with certain innate abilities, attributes, qualities and traits, natural instincts that are encoded into each of us by our genetic makeup. Your DNA, or what I prefer to call your distinct and natural abilities, your DNA, determines your structure, function, behavior. It is physically what we are and genetically who we are. It also determines who we can become. Is there such a thing as sales DNA? Is there a genetic code for successful salespeople? Is sales ability natural or learned? It's a topic that's been debated for many years and will be debated for many years to come. My thoughts? Well, I think it's both. Salespeople are both born and made. Yes, there are underlying traits in every good salesperson. Certain molecules for success. Natural attributes like outgoing, articulate, optimistic, (laughs) assertive, competitiveness. But selling is a a process. That also requires learning, developing, and practical, specific skills. Practicing. In other words, you may have sales DNA, a.k.a. a given talent, but, and it's a big but, you have to have the will, the determination, the desire to be successful. My great-grandfathers had that sales ability. Both were apprentices, and both Would have had to learn the sales process of their trades. William Murphy was a brush maker. Which is really a salesman too. And Richard McLeish, a shoemaker. Again, a salesman. It's fine and dandy to make wonderful bespoke things. But if no one buys them, you'll starve. Times were really tough back then. So what makes your product that different to all the rest? The answer is you. Just imagine it. To raise and feed very large families. They needed to be the best of the best at their trade, but also the best of the best at selling their products. They needed guts and determination for sure, but they needed an extra element as well to succeed. That element was a sales DNA. Who placed that mysterious sales gene in my DNA anyway? That one, the one that led to sales career way back in the 60s, that lasted well over 50 years. From a clerk to a sales cadet, dealer principal and then a sales coach and mentor. I have no regrets or concerns about whoever it was as it's been a wonderful and satisfying journey. It's a career never intended actually, never planned. My mother Rebecca McGartland Murphy McLeish, she just wanted her son to be an accountant just like her. She's a wizard at numbers and as are a lot of my family. My mum could do numbers in her head faster than the speeding bullet. And she was super accurate as well. But me? Bloody hopeless. Tamara's fathers and brothers at Chanel College in Geelong, well, they tried their hardest, but they failed miserably with me. I've always struggled with numbers. But in the end, and to keep my mum happy, I took to that bean counters path and got a very, 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 she I can't add enough, very boring office job. My... Path was kind of preordained by my mum. She said to me one evening, First off, Gordon, you need a good, solid clerical grounding in an office somewhere in the city. You should make it a big office, a busy one. And then you can go to night school for business accounting studies. And during that time, I'll we'll look out for a trainee accounting position in the newspapers. suppose she was looking for my future, it was mum, but me, I was just looking for my next week's pay packet. But the only problem with my mum's plan was that after some early clerical employment at Carlton United Breweries and a stint as a bookkeeper at Astor Electronics in Huntingdale, my dad got a job promotion and we all packed up sticks and moved to Sydney. I was lucky enough to get a job transfer to my company's Sydney office at Astor Electronics, but their offices were in Ryde, way, way the other side of the city from where we lived in Manly. And proved just too far away and too difficult to get to. Well in a reasonable time anyway. Mum then read a position vacant section of the Sydney Morning Herald and it was headed Trainee Accountant Wanted. On-site training for the right candidate. Contact Tom Matthews of Tom Matthews Motors for more details. Well that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review or subscribe. To or follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast from. I'm your host, Gordon McLeish, and thank you for listening.